Welcome back to the UConn Internal Medicine Podcast. My name is Rithika Kampella and I'm a PGY3 here at UConn and I'll be your host for today's episode. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the UConn Department of Medicine. The content is presented for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that said, let's pick up where we left off and continue with the third episode of the Palm Crit series. In institutions with primary neurology services, we don't get a lot of exposure to neurocritical care and emergencies. So, for today's episode, we'll be sitting down with Dr. Grover to discuss some of the clinically high-yield topics in neurocritical care. Without further ado. So first, we'll start off discussing strokes. Dr. Grover, can you walk us through the initial assessment of patients who present with concerns for stroke and explain a little bit more about the NIHSS scale? Even as medicine residents or medical ICU people, we need to know the basics for managing both ischemic, hemorrhagic strokes and subarachnoid bleeds. So when we talk about strokes, those are the three main categories. By far the most common are the ischemic strokes, which form about 80% of all strokes, followed by intracranial hemorrhage, which is about 15%, and subarachnoid bleeds, which is a totally different animal by itself, about 5% of all strokes. So each of them have different algorithms and pathways for management and tools to assess patient severity. The NIHSS has been used mainly for patients with ischemic stroke. It's used as a, a marker of severity of a stroke and also to see response to treatments or clinical worsening in patients. It should be done on presentation to the emergency room or to the ICU. It's also a core measure to follow every hour for patients who've had an acute stroke. Post-EPA, it's supposed to be done every 15 minutes to see if there's any change in every hour post-thrombectomy. So the initial test of choice when someone presents with what you suspect is a stroke and logical deficits is to start off with a non-contrast CT. So that would help you branch out your treatment algorithms into either an ischemic stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke, or a subarachnoid bleed. I guess you kind of already led us into the next part. You already discussed some of the different types of strokes and you started us off with the pathway depending on the stroke. So we've ended up with the CT head, which will essentially be our bifurcation point for management. Could you talk a little bit more about how the pathway would differ between ischemic and non-ischemic stroke? So let's talk about ischemic strokes first. And what's important to know or get an estimate is from the time of onset because our treatment depends on when the patient had onset of symptoms or when the last patient was last seen normal because that would be taken as onset of stroke. So if someone wakes up with a stroke, it's called a wake-up stroke. The last known normal was when the family members saw them or someone heard from them before they went to bed. So the treatment depends on when the patient presents and how many hours it is since their stroke pathway. For thrombolysis, there are two windows. There's a three-hour window and there's a four-and-a-half-hour window. So the patient has to meet certain inclusion-exclusion criteria, which I won't go over, and you can find them in any textbook, for the three-hour window or the four-and-a-half-hour window. If they do meet criteria, they should proceed with thrombolysis And while the medication is running, after the non-contrast head CT, these patients are sent for a CT angiogram. The aim of the CT angiogram is to look for a large vessel occlusion. Since the advent of mechanical thrombectomies, ischemic stroke care has totally changed. Now we have different windows for ischemic thrombectomy. Up to 24 hours, based on the dawn data, patients can be taken for an intervention if needed. So if the 3 hour and the 4 half hour window is done, you have to do a CTA. If there's a large vessel occlusion, up to 6 hours the patient can be taken for a thrombectomy without any further investigation. If it's been over 6 hours with a large vessel occlusion or the time is unknown, what we do is something called a CT perfusion or MR perfusion study. The aim of that study is to demonstrate presence of a penumbra and salvageable brain. Now, based on either the dawn criteria or the diffuse criteria, every stroke center has their algorithms and their inclusion-inclusion criteria. So, based on that, then the patient can be taken up to for a thrombectomy if they have a large risk occlusion up to 24 hours if needed. 
So for the hemorrhagic stroke, it's important to try to figure out the etiology of the stroke because a lot of the treatment would depend on that. If it's a typical hypertensive deep mitral stroke, they may not be amenable to surgery. So usually most of these require a neurosurgical intervention to see patients uh, an operative candidate or not. If not, the treatment pillars usually rest on blood pressure control, correction of coagulopathy if the patient is on anticoagulants, giving them reversal agents, management of ICP, and complications that may happen, including hydrocephalus, which may require drainage of CSF. So the ischemic stroke pathway is totally different than the hemorrhagic pathway. Blood pressure control are different also in both pathways. In the ischemic stroke, depending on the patient's presentation, whether they got TPA or not, there's criteria to give thrombolytics and where you want the blood pressure post-thrombolytics. So post-thrombolytics, you want the blood pressure less than 180, systolic less than 105. For hemorrhagic strokes, there are different studies, but most of the data suggests that try to keep the systolic blood pressure less than 140 millimeters of mercury based on the Interact 2 study. It also depends where the patient started off from. Usually, these patients are very hypertensive at presentation. So if their initial blood pressures are in the high 200s, you can try to bring it slowly. Bringing it down too fast also may be detrimental to the patients and may have a problem with endorgan perfusion, including renal failure, which may be caused by too rapid a drop in blood pressure. In the subarachnoid bleeds, for blood pressure management, if it's an unsecured aneurysm, the blood pressure should be kept as normal as possible. Once the aneurysm has been secured either with a coil or a clip, then the blood pressure can be raised to prevent complications like delayed cerebral ischemia. Vasospasm is one of the complications of DCI. I think you already started alluding to the differences in our strict monitoring parameters for ischemic versus non-ischemic or hemorrhagic strokes. And we know that we have specific blood pressure goals, but overall, it's preferred for patients to be normal thermic. They can have specific sodium and glucose parameters as well that need to be met. Along the same notes, would you mind walking us through the pathophysiology of some of the complications of strokes, such as cerebral edema, hemorrhagic conversion, and some risk factors for them, what we should be monitoring for in our patients? So depending on size and location of strokes, with the ischemic strokes, the patients may develop cerebral edema. This is a cytotoxic form of edema where they're actually cell death. Depending on uh, how much room for expansion patients have in their brain, they may get a rapid rise in their ICP. So the primary modality of ICP management in these patients with increased intracranial pressure usually rests on hypertonic therapy. And if it's a large stroke, especially in younger patients, you try to increase the size of the skull, which is done by a decompressive hemicraniectomy with opening of the dura. So you get the, the disease brain more room to expand. Again, hypertonic therapy in ischemic strokes, hemorrhagic strokes, and subarachnoid is not evidence-based. There are no large trials substantiating that it does change mortality in patients, but it makes sense to shrink the normal brain, let the diseased brain expand. So it's become standard of care. These patients, again, when you manage some Patients with strokes and raised ICP, you want their head of bed elevated. Fevers are bad, increases metabolic demand on the brain, increases brain damage. Blood sugars kept normal, as normal as possible. Hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia are both bad for these patients. In the subarachnoid population, we try to avoid patients scoffing, anything that raises their ICP, so they may require sedation, intubation, and mechanical ventilation at times. So what every resident needs to know is, is management of raised ICP because you may see this in patients who have hepatic encephalopathy, patients who have strokes, patients who take care of in medical ICU, and it's a medical emergency when someone has a raised ICP. Before we talk about how to manage it, we need to know how to measure it. All our patients don't have ICP monitors. It's the preferred modality to see if we can get an ICP monitor in patients. The definition of intracranial hypertension is a sustained increase in intracranial pressure of 22 millimeters of mercury or higher for five minutes. 
most brains start to swell and move and um, you'll be over 20 millimeters of mercury. So if you have an ICV monitor which is reading in the low 20s and the patient's already in trouble and you have to do certain maneuvers try to get the ICP down. For patients who don't have ICP monitors, you can look at the CT scans. If there's midline shift, if there's different types of herniation syndromes that you're seeing, subfalcine herniation, transtentorial herniation, uncle herniation, which is the middle end of the temporal lobe, that suggests that the patient may have a raised ICP. So we usually follow a step-by algorithm to manage ICP. The general measures including elevation of the head of the bed, let's CSF drain down as easily as possible, avoid constricting neck collars in these patients, whether it be ET tube ties or patients who have tracheostomies or any constriction around their neck. We already spoke about fevers increasing cerebral metabolic demands. The next step starts around hyperosmolar therapy. So you have two main agents that you can use or have been used is saline in different concentrations and mannitol. So mannitol has kind of fallen out of favor recently and most ICUs are using or ICUs are using saline exclusively to manage ICP and ICP crisis. The reason being is you want these patients uvolemic. And mannitol is an osmotic diuretic. So if you start giving mannitol, it does cause some osmotic diuretic and patients may be hypovolemic, which you don't want them to be in a hypovolemic state. With saline, you can use different concentrations. You can go from 0.9% saline all the way to 23.4% saline. The osmolarity of 23.4% saline is 8,008 milliosms per liter. So it's a very concentration salt solution. This can be given as aliquots of 30 ml in someone who's having an ICP crisis or impending herniation. So the idea is try to shrink the normal brain, let the brain expand and do room for the diseased brain to expand. After that, the hypertonicity can be maintained by either an infusion of hypertonic saline or repeated boluses. And either can be used and their personal bias biases for both, but those have been tried in the past. Normal serum osmolarity can be raised all the way up to 340, 350, 360 milliosms per liter. We've seen that in the TBI literature with the young people that we've gone up to 370 and 380 milliosms per liter. With mannitol, there's increased risk of renal failure if you increase osmolarity by, by that much. Saline is also a volume expander. Hopefully, that would increase cerebral perfusion as well. If hypertonic therapy is not working, deep sedation can be tried. Patients have been put on phenobarb coma to paralyze the brain and decrease oxygen requirements as an advanced measure. But these patients should have EEG monitoring at that time. Surgery should always be consulted for a decompression. It's standard of care for patients who have large MCA strokes or territory strokes who are young, something called malignant MCA syndrome and large midline shifts. It's debatable use in older populations or other reasons like intracranial hemorrhage or TBIs. In patients who have intracranial hemorrhage, surgery again should be consulted for evacuation of the bleed to increase space in the brain if needed or if there's hydrocephalus developing, placing an EVD or an extraventricular drain to remove CSF. Draining the CSF also helps relieve intracranial pressure and that's also one, a diagnostic mortality to check what the ICP is and to see if we can drain CSF and improve the intracranial pressure. The normal intracranial pressure usually runs between 5 to 15 millimeters of mercury depending on the hydration status, the position of the patient uh, and other factors. But once you start reaching these pressures in the 20s, then you probably headed towards an ICP crisis. So if you don't have an EVD, you can use a non-contrast CT to see if there are evidence of diffuse cerebral edema or midline shifts or raised ICP. Things that you have to look for in the non-contrast CT are loss of grey-white differentiation, which is seen in extreme cases of cerebral edema. Look at the size of the ventricles, effacement of sulci and gyri, which may indicate increased ICP. There are different types of herniation syndromes that can be seen. It could be a midline shift, 
depending on where the lesion is, which is also called subpalsine herniation because the herniation happens under the fox. There's transtentorial herniation, which can happen. Uncle herniation, which is movement of the medial end of the temporal lobe, which is a sign. And we see ipsilateral pupillary dilation because of third nerve involvement in that case. And the most dreaded one, of course, is herniation through the foramen magnum, which can cause brain death. So we're going to change gears and talk about another neurologic emergency, which is status epilepticus. We know that the definition essentially is a prolonged seizure that lasts greater than five minutes or sequential seizures with no return to baseline mental status. So Dr. Grover, if you could walk us through the best way to assess patients in status epilepticus and how we would go through the algorithm to treat them. So as the definition says, these are patients who are seizing over five minutes and they don't return to baseline after the seizure is over. So it could be convulsive or non-convulsive status. Each has its own set of complications. But when a patient is presenting with status epileptics for whatever reason, our first treatment modality is usually benzodiazepine. So we reach for either Ativan or lorazepam or Versed or midazolam, which can be given up to 10 to 12 milligrams in divided doses to see if the patient responds. So about 70 to 80% of patients would respond to the initial dose of the benzodiazepine. And while the benzodiazepine is being given, think about what your next step is going to be with these patients. These, of course, include your you know, ABCDs and make sure that you know the patient is not aspirating. You may need to uh, secure the airway if needed. If they are not responding to benzodiazepines, then you need to go to a next agent, which could be either Keppra, Phenytoin or Phosphenytoin or Valproic acids. Those are all of the three choices that you can use right after the benzodiazepines. And at this point, I would also think about intubating the patient and possibly starting them on a propofol infusion. Propofol has anti-seizure properties through various mechanisms, which may help the patient as well. It's also important to remember that you may stop the convulsions, but this does not mean that the seizure has stopped. And the brain may suffer significant damage even if you have non-convulsive status. So it's important to place these patients on EEG monitoring as early as possible, whether it be portable or continuous EEG monitoring. You know, sometimes it's akin to treating a cardiac arrhythmia without an EKG or telemetry when you start treating these patients without EEG monitoring. So EEG monitoring and titrating your medications is very important in these patients. So speaking of EEGs, could you walk us through the difference between cerebellus, routine EEGs, and long-term monitoring or continuous EEGs? So a preferred modality of choice usually is continuous EEG or long-term EEGs because it gives you a larger montage. You have every area of the brain that is charted and you can localize seizures. So if you were to talk about cerebral and an EEG, the cerebral is more like cardiac telemetry and an EEG would be like an EKG where you can get much more information of where the seizure is coming from, the periodicity of the seizures. But it's not practical to start everybody who presents on a complete EEG. So cerebral is a tool that we used here at St. Francis to initially start them on EEG monitoring, which is a portable EEG monitoring read by neurophysiologist on call who can give us real-time information and even the machine can tell us what the seizure threshold is and give us rough idea if the patient is responding to treatment still seizing or the seizures have stopped. If the cerebell is negative, does that mean they're not having seizures? No, so that is incorrect. So, so we, we always prefer to get a complete EEG. Finally, what would be some of the labs that would be useful in our interpretation of whether or not a patient's seizing? So one thing that you can check is a lactic acid. So patients who have seizures or present unresponsive, usually they have elevated lactic acid because of seizures. And then there's usually a rapid drop in the lactic acid levels once the seizure has stopped. So that may be a clue as opposed to other causes of shock where the lactic acid takes longer to come down. So that may be helpful. Checking CKS level to see if there's rhabdomyolysis, which is a complication of status, which may need treatment, is also important in these patients. You get a prolactin level, but the turnaround time for that is, is pretty large and it takes a couple of days for the prolactin level to come back to see if the patient is 
actually seized. So it's not very practical to send that. Would you expect an elevated CK in a patient with non-convulsive status? Um, not really. So that's one way of differentiating status, convulsive versus non-convulsive. But non-convulsive status usually is diagnosed on an EEG. And it's very common even in patients who are in the ICU. If you put EEG monitoring on most of our patients in the ICU, even in the medical ICU, you can pick up a fair amount of seizures in these patients. You kind of already alluded to this earlier, but in addition to traditional antiepileptics, are there any other adjunct medications that we can give in the ICU setting to help suppress seizure burdens, such as the sedatives that we select? So for this, we have to think about the pathophysiology of seizures. Usually there's an imbalance between the inhibitory neurotransmitters and the excitatory neurotransmitters. So the longer the patient seizes, the less of the GABA receptors that they have on the cell surfaces. They get internalized and the more benzodiazepines we give, patients become refractory to benzodiazepine treatment. So most of the initial frontline agents that we use work on the GABA pathway, including benzodiazepines and propofol to a certain extent. So we can try to work on different pathways. Phenobarb is a drug which does not require endogenous GABA to work, although it does work on the GABA pathway. So that is very good for refractory seizures. A drug which is coming back and uses sedating agent is ketamine. So ketamine is mainly an MDA receptor antagonist, and that's one of the first excitatory transmitters was discovered to cause seizures also. So if patient is refractory to agents that act on GABA receptors, think about using something like ketamine in these patients. High-dose benzodiazepine drips also, because of downregulation of GABA receptors, have been helpful. And the benzodiazepine drips, when started, are not your normal 2 or 4 milligrams per person. In Adivan, you're talking about 0.5 milligrams to up to 2 milligrams per kilo per hour. So you're talking about percent drips of 100 milligrams an hour sometimes to control seizures in these patients. Yeah, I remember the first time hearing about that Versed drip and kind of being shocked at how high the rates can go for seizure suppression. So that being said, neurologic emergencies need to be identified and managed quickly. Hopefully this quick review of the most common clinical scenarios gives you more strength in reaching out to your neurology and neurosurgery colleagues. That's all we have for you guys. Stay curious and until next time.